your patients will know. They'll they'll feel the authenticity of your recommendations and they will be inspired by you. They're like, if my doctor who isn't sleeping and is on a tight resident or student budget is able to do this diet, then so can I. And you are an inspiration for your patients, but having that knowledge, that's the key. That's what makes you convincing. This is Meaningful Medicine. In a challenging and unpredictable world with high burnout rates, this is a podcast where incredible individuals share their most meaningful patient experiences and focus on those moments of positivity and joy that sparked their love of healthcare and changed the way they practice medicine. Hi, I'm Nicole Hohenstein, and I'm an emergency medicine resident at UCSF. Hi, I'm Shiva Kayambashi. I'm a doctor and professor of family and community medicine at UCSF. We're the co-hosts of Meaningful Medicine, We created this podcast to highlight stories of healthcare professionals who have found a sense of meaning, resilience, and joy in their work. Hey, Nicole, how are you doing today? Hey, Shiva, I'm doing well. How are you doing? I am doing well. I am also especially excited about our guest today and about talking about nutrition. It's one of my favorite topics, and I love talking about it. I am so excited that we're going to be tackling the topic of food as medicine and nutrition education today. And I think it's really important to discuss this topic because as physicians, I think we get asked a lot from our family members, friends, and our patients about, you know, what food should people be eating and how should they be thinking about nutrition? And I think a lot of times we haven't necessarily been given the tools or the information to give them adequate information. And we fall back on saying, you know what, I think you should talk to a nutritionist. And thinking about my medical school at UCSF, we were taught a lot about the biochemistry of food and talking a lot about the nitty gritty science. But really, I think the education lacked in the actual practical advice about what advice should we be giving patients about basic nutrition advice and how can we educate our patients about what food is really healthy and nourishing for their bodies. Love to hear about your experience, Shiva, in medical school and your training in family medicine. Yeah, Nicole, the truth is in medical school, I don't think we had much, as you said, I don't think we really had hardly any education formally about nutrition or about specifically how to talk about diet and nutrition with patients or about various kinds of diet. That really didn't come up. And then in residency, I mean, there was so much more to learn. And then in residency in family medicine, the truth is uh, my residency program was really heavy on a lot of just amazing things in in, inpatient medicine, hospital-based medicine, outpatient primary care. Things are so rushed that we really, not only did we not get much education about nutrition, there was really not much time. And there really wasn't much time for learning about it among all the other things you're learning about that are really considered hospital-based or outpatient medicine too. But there wasn't much time in the patient encounter either. And there still isn't much time in the patient encounter to actually delve into patients' nutrition or their their questions about their diet. And in fact, a lot of time, just like you said, we had the basics, which is like how to advise a person with diabetes about a low-carb diet or about how to talk to somebody with hypertension about a low-salt diet. I mean, really, I'm talking very basic. And there really wasn't much time for anything else. So I I think we end up referring people. If they have interests, we end up referring to people. If we're lucky, we learn what the dietitian 
writes in their note. And so we're learning from them indirectly and then just doing our own reading if we had time. Nowadays, there's so much more out there though that's available for your own education and my own education. So I've sort of sought out more learning since residency, but I have to say, I didn't, I don't think I learned enough about diet and nutrition during residency or during med school training at all. So we just have to make time for our learning, I think now. And we are just really excited. We've talked about having our guest, Dr. Carla Kwan, join us today on the podcast. And Dr. Kwan is an integrative medicine doctor, and she's a hospitalist, and she co-manages UCSF's hematology oncology inpatient service. She has a particular interest in integrative oncology, nutrition, mind-body medicine, and traditional Chinese medicine. And it's really wonderful to have Dr. Kwan here to discuss the topic of food as medicine and how she integrates nutrition advice into her practice. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Kwan. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for both inviting me and taking an interest in food as medicine because it is a topic of passion. We're so excited to have you. And we like to start out each episode by asking our guests to, in short, share a meaningful moment from early on in your training that was particularly formative or defining experience. You know, I think on the topic of food, I didn't know it at the time, but when I was in the middle, actually almost completing my internal medicine residency, I suffered from a lot of chronic fatigue and brain fog. And after seeing multiple, multiple specialists and being told to do this and to take that, I didn't really find that I was getting anywhere with my health and I was losing a lot of weight and I felt like I was critically ill. And so eventually I was able to narrow my diagnosis. The symptoms had to fall under one of seven diagnoses. And I went to a gastroenterologist and they said, could you just please test me for these seven diseases? And I still remember the day that it happened. I received the page. I was in the emergency room about to do an overnight shift. It was about 7 p.m. And I had my sandwich in front of me. And I get this page to an outside number from the hospital. And I wasn't sure what that was about. So I called and the gastroenterologist said, one of your tests came back positive. And they said, your antibodies against gluten. You're at, back then, we didn't even have TTG antibodies. It was just gliad. And probably dating myself by saying that, but they were positive and I was about to bite into my sandwich. And what I did was I threw away the sandwich and I bought like, I think maybe some potato chips and that was my dinner for that night. And that was the beginning of my path to the recovery of my brain and recovery of my health. And as significant as one dietary change was to give me back my life, I think I didn't know it at the time because I wanted to become an infectious disease doctor after graduation. But I think that was the beginning of what brought me to food as medicine and integrative medicine, is appreciating the power of knowing how to nourish your body for your body type. Thank you for sharing that incredible story of being tested for and being diagnosed with celiac disease. I do have a follow-up question. A lot of children learn what and how to eat from their parents. I think we all do. And I'm curious to hear how your relationship was with food as a child growing up. And did you associate food with how you felt? Yeah, so I come from a multi-ethnic background. My father is Chinese, Hispanic, and my mother is Italian. So I grew up with delicious, you know, Peruvian Asian food, as well as delicious homemade pastas and homemade bread. So I enjoyed the very best Italian food ever. 
And I think fortunately for me, I actually grew up in Peru where food tends to be more rice-based and fish-based. And uh, probably if I had grown up with my Italian family, I may have been a little sicker earlier. (laughs) But interestingly enough, when I went to college and I started not eating my mother's cooking, but the more prepared foods, you know, the sandwiches and the, the soups, you know, thickened with flour, I started developing more symptoms of fatigue, but just, you know, battled through it until it came to this culminating point in a residency where I was just really failing to thrive. And so that's when finally, you know, I came to, you know, narrowed it to one of seven diagnoses. And interestingly enough, you know, my two grandparents are Italian and I have one grandfather, you know, growing up on Italian food who was healthy as a horse. In fact, he died. He was one week away from his 105th birthday. God bless him. But my grandmother, who probably whose genetics I probably inherited, was a very sickly woman her whole life. And she died, you know, decades earlier. And that goes to the point of knowing how there isn't one fit for all. You know, some people can thrive on one diet and it can be deadly or poisonous or toxin filled for somebody else. And so respecting that personalization, how one diet can be good for one person, but not another is something that I do also integrate into my practice. So I take the anti-inflammatory diet, but I do personalize it based on the biology I see before me. I love that. I think having a non-black and white view on nutrition and dietary recommendations and making it personalized is so important. But I think it's also can be stressful for doctors to think about, oh, you know, they're not these hard and fast rules. It is kind of knowing your patient and figuring out what works best for them. And, you know, that does take time. And thinking about medical education in terms of nutrition, we did find a 2019 JAMA article titled Nutritional Education in Medical School, Residency Training and Practice. The authors describe the importance of diet and health, citing multiple randomized control trials that show that dietary interventions can have a large impact on the prevention and management of diseases such as cardiovascular disease and diabetes, like we mentioned earlier. The authors also highlight a 2018 report by the U.S. Burden of Disease Collaborators who identify poor quality diet as the leading cause of death in the United States. Given that diet is so important to health and preventing illness, it is surprising that medical school education on nutrition is so sparse. It is estimated that on average, during the four years of medical school, students are taught only 19 hours total of nutrition, which honestly surprises me compared to how many other hours we spend on so many other topics. And lastly, in a 2017 study of cardiologists, 90% reported not receiving adequate nutrition education to be able to counsel their patients, yet 95% of all cardiologists in the study felt like it was their personal responsibility to do so. Dr. Kwan, can you tell us the key aspects of an anti-inflammatory diet and how you counsel your patients? Absolutely. And yes, I agree with you. I think you and I both had the same experience. I do remember one lecture on nutrition. I may have had others that I don't remember, but I do remember just one hour. And it was the basics. If you're diabetic, you want to do a low carb diet. If you have high cholesterol, you want to do a low fat diet and nothing else. And needless to say, I think we could do better with nutrition education across the board, including in medical schools. And in terms of the anti-inflammatory diet, 
I take the ground basis is the Mediterranean diet. And the Mediterranean diet is basically a plant-based diet and the majority of its calories with in high intake of foods that are anti-inflammatory, which would include cruciferous vegetables, fish and fish oils, omega-3s coming from both plants as well as fish, and lots of plant polyphenols from uh, fruits. So it is, in essence, a plant-based diet. And in terms of the differences between anti-inflammatory and Mediterranean, I really do use those terms interchangeably. The reason why I say anti-inflammatory is many people, when they think of Mediterranean, they think of, oh, I love pizza and pasta. And that's not what the anti-inflammatory diet is about. So I just like to use anti-inflammatory because I think it's more descriptive. It doesn't really put in your brain pizza or pasta. <laughs> it actually describes that this is to lower inflammation and these are the foods that you need to eat to lower inflammation. And so I think that that is the key and the basis upon which I personalize my other recommendations. Now, in terms of details about the anti-inflammatory diet, the essence is five servings of vegetables a day with a strong emphasis on cruciferous vegetables. And the reason for that is cruciferous vegetables contain a chemical that is called sulforaphanes. It kind of sounds like sulfur, and they do in fact have sulfur bonds. And there is an extensive amount of research and literature on sulforaphanes and their powerful anti-inflammatory effects, which is mediated by reduction in NF-kappa-beta expression. NF-kappa-beta is really where all inflammation begins in the body. Once NF-kappa-beta gets expressed in the DNA, all of the inflammatory cytokines, interleukin-1-beta, interleukin-6, the things that increase your ESR and your CRP on lab work, they all get expressed. And so if you are eating plenty of sulforaphanes in your diet and you are reducing NF-kappa-beta, you are really actually lowering inflammation at its origin, which is really, really powerful. The only thing that does that in a similar way in medicine is there are steroids. Steroids act in a little bit of a different way. They actually go into ribosomes and they change ribosomal expression of certain proteins that increase inflammation. So I call sulforaphanes nature steroids without any of the side effects that we know of with steroids. So that is one of the key aspects of the anti-inflammatory diet. The other thing is whenever we're talking about inflammation, we want to talk about oxidative stress in the body. And that's where fruits like the berries come in. Berries contain another phytochemical that are called anthocyanins. And anthocyanins are powerful antioxidants. And so if you only address inflammation, but you don't address oxidative stress in the body, that can still kind of take its course because oxidative stress promotes inflammation. So anytime you think of inflammation, you want to think inflammation and oxidation. You want to address both together. And so the basis of this pyramid of the anti-inflammatory diet is five servings of vegetables, but mostly cruciferous vegetables, and two to three servings of plant polyphenols from the berry family. The berries are the highest contents of anthocyanins.
Next, I do counsel to eat whole grains as opposed to the more refined flours. So like brown rice instead of the white rice, the whole grain uh, breads instead of the more refined breads, because more refined foods will have a higher glycemic impact on the body. And when you eat a refined food, let, let's say, you know, something that's floury, that has a refined white flour, what your body does to bring down glucose levels is it secretes a hormone called IGF-1, and that stands for insulin-like growth factor. The insulin-like growth factor will promote insulin, and then you bring down your blood sugar. But what people don't know is that IGF-1 is one of those other things that promotes that cascade of inflammation. It's one of the reasons why diabetics have so many inflammatory conditions and early acceleration of aging of their organs is they are having big amounts of IGF-1 secretion throughout their day each time their blood sugar goes you know, above 130. You know, if we're lucky enough not to be diabetics, that doesn't happen as much, but you could still have peaks and waves of IGF-1 if you're eating a lot of carbs and a lot of processed sugars in the diet. Then the other aspect of the anti-inflammatory diet is getting lots and lots of omega-3s from the diet. And there are omega-3s from plants and omega-3s have also an ability to lower NF-kappa-beta. So the omega-3s from plants come from alpha-linoleic acid, and that would be present in things like walnuts, black seed, uh, hemp seeds, and also avocados have them. So eating lots of those is really healthy. And your body is only able to convert between 1% and 10% of ALA into the final, final omega-3, which is EPA and DHA. And that's why fish are so important. Fish actually contain EPA and DHA, and that is the most bioavailable form of omega that is incredibly anti-inflammatory. So I normally say the diet is based on lots of plants and lots of fish, and that is really the essence of the Mediterranean diet. Other foods like animal meats, I think that they are important. They contain lots of nutrients like B12 and iron, but we do have lots of evidence that high amounts of animal products do tend to promote more inflammation in the body. There's a link to increased red meat consumption and cancer. And we think that that's probably mediated by a number of things, but inflammation is one of the key aspects. So this is not a vegetarian diet, but it is a plant-based diet that does have lots of fish and adequate amounts of animal proteins, but to a reduced extent. If you detoxify the body, you do help to lower inflammation and things like resveratrol, which is present in larger amounts in red wine. And then dark chocolate actually has some nice plant polyphenols. So we all, we all have a sweet tooth and we want to socialize. Those are good choices. I love that. You just gave me an excuse to have my red wine tonight, which always a good thing. <laughs> I want to kind of quickly ask, is dairy, when you talk about animal proteins and animal products, is dairy included in that? Yes, it is. And in fact, out of all of the animal proteins, I think dairy is the most inflammatory of all. There are four issues with dairy that we should all be aware of and knowledgeable about. We are mammals, and across the kingdom of animals, all mammals share this, including humans. Mammals, we are genetically programmed to benefit from dairy only through the age of weaning. And the age of weaning in humans is when you grow your adult teeth. And that happens somewhere between the age of nine. By the time you reach the age of nine, you have grown all your adult teeth. So your body does something really interesting around that point. It 
figures that you no longer need dairy to survive and that you're probably chewing really well. And it actually turns off the gene. We all know there's epigenetics and genes get turned on and off throughout our life. So the gene that produces the lactose enzyme actually gets taken off market. It actually gets shut down. And between the age of seven and nine, lactase production dwindles to almost zero. And that is in most people. I will say there is only one genetic population that is lactose persistence gene in the third chromosome. And these are people who come from Norway. So apparently, you know, Vikings, there could be a genetic selection there for this gene. Vikings who had this genetic mutation probably had a survival advantage during the eight months of Arctic frost when there was nothing to drink but reindeer milk. So it is highly prevalent in the Viking population. And then, of course, the Vikings went to England where they sowed their seeds and colonized England for a while or invaded it, some people would say. So apparently in the English genetics, this gene seems to be quite prevalent as well. And so unless you come from that background, the likelihood is that you do not have this mutation in your third chromosome. And anytime you digest the dairy and you are unable to break it down, those larger proteins go into the small intestine where it creates an inflammatory response. And the reason for that is the main role of the small intestine is just to absorb nutrients. When it sees large particles, your immune system thinks it could be a bacteria and it starts reacting to it. And therefore that creates a lot of immune inflammation and reactivity. That's only problem number one with dairy. Casein, which is one of the main proteins in dairy, is highly pro-inflammatory and neuro-inflammatory. So for example, on with kids who have ADHD or autism, we have a specialist at the Osher Center who prescribes a gluten-free, dairy-free diet and some vitamins. And a lot of these kids really start actually behaving more appropriately and going back to school. So casein is a, the most prevalent protein in dairy and it's highly problematic and inflammatory. Then reasons three or four are more of a United States problem. Unfortunately, our cows do get injected with growth hormones and antibiotics, and those antibiotics are probably wiping out our good flora. I'm seeing an avalanche of IBS cases at Osher. Everybody has very disrupted flora, possibly contributing to an increase of antimicrobial resistance in some of the E. coli strains that we see. And of course, the growth hormones, they are probably not good and probably really changing our endocrine systems, possibly promoting obesity, but definitely would be problematic in cases of cancer like prostate and, and uh, estrogen receptor breast cancer. So it is probably the single most problematic food in our diet. And the Western diet is very pro-cheese, whereas other diets are not so. And we know that the Western diet is, is a high diet that's associated with inflammation and cancer. So normally what I tell people is try to avoid or eliminate the evil triad, right? And that would be sugar or too much sugar, too much dairy, and too many processed meats. Thank you so much for breaking that down and sharing both the science and big picture aspects of the anti-inflammatory diet. And what I love about this is we're shifting the conversation away from what we started with, which was diet specific to treat diabetes. 
high cholesterol. And we're changing the conversation specifically to think about prevention. How are we going to use food to have anti-inflammatory effects to avoid getting these diseases down the line? And I think that is so incredible. And that's where we should really have focus when we think about diet and diet for everyone. Pivoting, I, I really appreciated kind of you discussing really plants as being a huge aspect, um, as well as fish. And I know that, you know, when we think about our patients and thinking about SF General, where Shiva works and different areas in the United States, you know, there are food deserts and there's areas where people unfortunately don't have the resources or don't have the access to fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, and fresh seafood. What do you recommend for patients who have these kind of health disparities and how can they access quality food? I think a lot of people think that the anti-inflammatory diet is supposed to be an expensive diet. But a couple of points, when you prepare your own food as opposed to buying pre-made food, you actually do save money. I have found that the biggest barriers in my patients has not necessarily been finances because I'm not asking them to buy everything organic, but it's mostly time. And a lot of the patients who are in the lower socioeconomic status, you know, some of them work two, three jobs to keep ends meeting. Many of them take care of multiple folks in their home, including their aging parents. And I think the hassle factor and the lack of time is the primary driver. A lot of people buy packaged foods because it's convenient. And so if you follow this diet, you can pass on tools for your patients to follow shortcuts, things that you do. You know, by the time I finish my work after 10 hours, I am really hungry and I don't want to cook a meal from scratch. And so I have to make a three minute meal. So when you prepare this food for yourself, you can say, oh, you know, I, I just pop some broccoli and you know, microwave it for three minutes. It may not be as nice as getting fresh broccoli from the market and cooking it from scratch, but there are shortcuts that you can teach your patient. And do not ever underestimate the power of example. Your patients want to know what you know. They want to do what you do to stay healthy and smart and be a doctor. When you tell them this is what you do to prepare like a three-minute Mediterranean meal, there's a lot of power to that. And of course, as a resident and the trainee, you're on a budget too. And so if you can figure out budget-friendly ways to eat fish, right? That's a little gold nugget that you can give to your patients. So for example, one really easy way to increase fish consumption in your diet is canned sardines. Sardines really, if you get them fresh from a can, they really are just a saltier version of tuna. So if you've ever enjoyed the tuna sandwich, you can probably enjoy a sardine toast. And it's a three minute meal for under $2. So the Mediterranean diet or the anti-inflammatory diet does not have to be expensive. You know, you can do frozen berries. Berries only lose about 10% of their nutritional content. You can do frozen broccoli and just pop it in the microwave. I always say perfection is the enemy of the good. If you do, you know, a sardine toast, okay, you're not making fresh salmon from the oven, but you're still getting incredible amounts of anti-inflammatories into your diet. You do three sardine toasts a week, and now you've had three servings of fish in that week. So it does not have to be expensive. Once you know, once you're following this diet, you can pass these little tips on to your patients and they realize it's really not that hard. And when you like you walk the walk, not just talk the talk, your patients will know. They'll they'll feel 
the authenticity of your recommendations and they will be inspired by you. They're like, if my doctor who isn't sleeping and is on a tight resident or student budget is able to do this diet, then so can I. And you are an inspiration for your patients. But having that knowledge, that's the key. That's what makes you convincing. I really appreciate Dr. Kwan, you're sharing. It. We can tell our patients, for example, don't smoke. But if they see us smoking in the hallway, that just ruins everything. So if we're talking about how we're taking nutrition, I think advising and finding the lowest cost sorts of versions of things and practicing that, I really appreciate that. Uh, angle and the perspective of sharing from your own personal experience. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of the health impacts that you've seen in your own patients. If you have any stories that you might share about any of your patients that have taken your dietary advice and they've moved on to the anti-inflammatory antioxidant diet. Oh gosh, yeah, there's so many. I could give you one example. I had a patient who came to me who had metastatic gastrointestinal cancer. And I think perhaps this would be a good place for me to say that I do personalize the anti-inflammatory diet for different physiologies. And so with cancer, I am much more strict about absolute no sugar and patients can use stevia or monk fruit. The main reason why I base that is because we know that glycolysis is the main metabolic pathway by which cancer cells derive energy. As you know, cancer cells, it's not, cancer is not one thing. It's many different cells expressing different proteins and losing their ability to multiply in a reasonable fashion or to be controlled in terms of metabolics. The way I explain it to patients, when I convince them to give up something like ice cream, if they have cancer, is PET scans. So when you take a patient to a PET CT, what do you do? You inject them with a radio-labeled glucose, and then you just watch their cancer cells avidly taking up that glucose, and they shine like a light bulb, right? So that is like the easiest way to explain to a patient that sugar is feeding your cancer, and that motto, by the way, is true. And when they, if they've been through a PET CT, they're like, oh, yeah, that's right. And it just gives them, you know, the understanding of what they're doing. So my Normal cells have a lot of metabolic flexibility. You can derive energy from protein, fats, or the breakdown of sugars. So you can still find a way to nourish your body adequately and kind of like not, not feed the cancer. And that's one of the strategies that I use. So I had a patient who came to me with metastatic cancer and wanted to extend his survival. And I taught him the anti-cancer diet, which is basically a strict sugar-free uh, anti-inflammatory diet version. And he did really well. And doctors were amazed that he went into remission, responded to all of his therapies. And he enjoyed his remission for many, many years. And I didn't see him for about three years, three, four years, and then came back to my practice. And he had unfortunately had a relapse of his cancer. But he did say as long as he was following my diet, he remained cancer-free. And then, of course, he grew comfortable and started eating ice cream again and kind of falling off the diet. And he had now mental metastases and had fluid in his abdomen. And I was not able to help him the second time because as some of you may know, when cancer does come back, it usually comes back more aggressive and more refractory to prior chemo. It's almost like, you know, bacteria can grow resistance. The tumor cells that have survived usually have a little bit more resistance to prior treatments. And so the second time around, it was a lot harder and he did, he did pass, but his wife sent me a message. If he was alive as long as he was, it was because 
he had come to me and I had instructed him. So that's just one really poignant example. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think at least I can think of a couple family members who have had similar experiences with their battles of cancer and changing up their diet was a very effective way to maybe not cure the cancer, but prolong their life. And thank you so much for sharing. It's a powerful story. I have another patient who metastatic prostate cancer who also does sugar-free. He actually on his own went all the way and he does plant-based keto, which I find incredibly difficult to do. But he's a scientist and he's very OCD and he keeps charts and everything. So he decided to go all the way. And he's had metastatic prostate cancer ever since I've known him. And I've been doing this for five years now. And doctors are still amazed that he's like running marathons. And they say that he's a unicorn because there's no way he could be alive by now. And he's doing great. That's amazing. It's such an amazing example. Yeah. Before we started recording this podcast, we were talking about how a lot of nutrition information is available online, and there are endless blogs, endless books where we can research different aspects of nutrition. We also were discussing how we can often get lost in this information and how a lot of these sources have competing information and a lot of misinformation. And it can be hard to weed through what has scientific backing and what does not have scientific backing. What resources can we go to to learn more about nutrition? Yeah, that's a great point. I think the Integrative Fellowship is where I learned a lot of my information. And I know the Arizona Fellowship probably has a wealth of information as well. And I wish there was a, one particular website you know, that was an easy access to all of the information. But I agree with you. I have additionally read a number of books from medical experts in the field, and I have seen everything from people being militant about everyone should be on a vegan diet to everybody should be paleo keto. And the reason why some people swear by one diet and then others try it and they're like, meh, it didn't work for me is because people's biologies are unique and individual and have different requirements. So I agree with you. I think there's a lot of information and it's very confusing because it's polarized and some of it written by medical doctors. Generally, I can say this, plant-based is a good idea. Lots of antioxidants and lots of anti-inflammatories is a good idea. But having the knowledge of the biology, for example, with cancer, I do you know, have some modifications that I make is important. And this has to be based on clinical studies. So you know, there has to be biologic evidence for the recommendations. In terms of where to get more education, there is a John Milner Nutrition and Cancer Prevention annual meeting where people actually present data and research on vitamins and nutrients. And I think that is a really, really good place for people to get evidence-based, you know, scientific-based information about foods. But mostly, I think that I have learned the chemical basis of different foods and so if I see somebody who's very inflamed, I'm going to recommend lots of anti-inflammatories. If I see somebody who has cancer, understanding the underlying biochemistry with how this disease works and focusing a diet based on that is a really good approach to take generally. How do you bring the discussion about diet into the conversation where most 
people that I know actually as friends and colleagues who are patients, as soon as their doctor brings up the word diet or nutrition, many people actually really do feel like their guard goes up, right? Like, uh-oh, so now I'm afraid you're going to bring up my weight and I'm really uncomfortable about that. But most people won't say that because they're polite and respectful to their doctors. And yet they do feel internally triggered and maybe judged. So I'm curious if you have any of your own experiences, Dr. Kwan, in terms of how do you bring up the discussion in a way that's delicate and sensitive and kind, and yet opens the individual in front of you's mind to hearing what you're about to share so that they don't feel defensive. Could you share any pearls about what your experiences are around that? Yeah, thank you so much. I think that's a really important question. I'm probably quite privileged because I'm not an emergency room doctor and I don't practice as much hospital medicine as well. So I I think time, you know, being able to approach this sensitively does require time and getting to know your patient. And I remember as a hospitalist, I had like 10 minutes at the bedside and it definitely is insufficient to develop the rapport and the kind of sensitivity around the topic where the patient, you know, really trusts you and knows that you have their best interests. So I'm privileged because patients come to me and they want to know, you know, how to be healthier, how to not have to take so many medications. So I do select the patient population who is already motivated because they want a doctor to tell them, you know, what is going to be the best nutrition. I normally tell patients this is not a diet, this is a lifestyle approach, and I I don't bring weight into the conversation. Never. I always tell patients you're inflamed. That's why your joints hurt. That's why you're fatigued. Let's talk about how to decrease inflammation. A lot of times I combine that with blood work, you know, which shows markers of inflammation going up and they're like, "What can I do to bring this down?" And generally Even when patients come to me because they're concerned about the weight, I don't talk about the weight. I tell them, okay, you have these goals, you're fatigued, you have brain fog, you want to extend your lifespan or your health span, you have concerns about your joints, your joints hurt. How can we meet your goals by natural plants? How can we increase foods that are going to help nourish your body in a way that is appropriate for you and bring the best health to you. And by the way, a lot of people lose weight on this diet, but it's because when you're less inflamed, you're less swollen, you have less water in your body, you might feel more energy, so you may be actually up for a little walk in the afternoon, but that's never what I focus on. And I have a lot of patients who additionally have vitamin deficiencies like vitamin D and iron deficiency. And so when you combine the anti-inflammatory diet with appropriate nutrients and they start feeling energy, all of a sudden, you know, they feel like taking that little walk in the afternoon. I don't really pressure them. I just try to make them feel better and they kind of take it from there. That's how you approach a patient and motivate them. You know, there's a component of motivational interviewing. These are your health goals. This is how I know I can help you reach health goals. And it tends to work that way because it doesn't sound judgmental. And, you know, a lot of patients really want doctors to know what to recommend. They want doctors to tell them what to eat. They don't want doctors to tell them you're overweight, you need to lose weight. They want to tell them how, how to do it. 
And usually doctors tell them to eat less, basically just eat less, right? If you're eating this many calories, cut those calories. And that's just not helpful to helping you feel better. It's very goal oriented to the number on the scale. So I love what you just shared about just let's not talk about that number on the scale. Let's talk about how you feel and how to get you to feel well and the rest will fall into place. I love that you are really shifting the conversation from focusing on weight and BMI and really focusing on other markers of health. How are your joints feeling? You know, how's your energy level? Let's focus on how's your sleep. And I think these are so much more motivating, I think, than trying to continuously look down at the scale and see how you're doing in that way, but really refocus on how are you feeling? How is the food that you're eating making you feel? I, I don't know about you, but when I, I had this experience, and I'm wondering if you guys had this experience, when I, I was a nocturnist when I first started out in my hospital work, and uh, of course, very interrupted sleep, getting paged every two minutes to put out fires in the hospital, and I remember that I craved chocolate, like I was going to die if I didn't have some chocolate, you know, or, or a Twix bar or <laughs> a Snickers, and that's the cortisol stress link, you know, with the sleep deprivation and the cravings. And so once I stopped doing night shifts, I just didn't crave chocolate anymore. I do sometimes remember to eat it, but I don't really think about it as often. So I tell patients the story that if we improve your sleep and we improve your stress levels, it's not your fault. Your brain is seeing cortisol and that's what your brain responds to. Let's just take care of the underlying issues and everything will fall into place. Kind of going off of that, for people who are on night shifts and can't switch off of night shifts, whether they're in residency or that's just what their job entails, what do you recommend in terms of trying to decrease the cortisol, increase your ability to sleep and regulate your body, your circadian rhythm, and just feel better and not have as many cravings? Yeah, I think that's a tough one because it kind of comes with the territory, right? So I tell folks, you know, do whatever you need to do to get survive residency and training, because you're really achieving your goals by doing that to become a doctor. And it's so fulfilling, incredible sacrifice that you're making, but it won't be forever, right? You won't have to be a nocturnist forever. You won't have to do night shifts forever. So as long as it's not for the rest of your life, I think that you can probably acclimate to it. But as you start getting older, I think it's more and more important to make sure you do prioritize sleep, you know, make sure that you do make some changes in your lifestyle so that that requirement is met by your body. Because when you're in your 20s, your body is very forgiving and it's very resilient. And as you start approaching your 40s and 50s, it's less so. And those are the times when it's important to shift away from that really high stress work. The main thing you can do right now, other than not working nights, which is not an option, would be adopting some mindfulness habits. There's lots of data that shows that adopting mindfulness is helpful for preventing physician burnout and ensuring that you have more tools to adapt to the stress that does come with your job because it is a very, very stressful job. Thank you so much, Dr. Quinn. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and being on the podcast today. It's been wonderful. It's been a real privilege. Thank you so much for inviting me and all admiration to you for launching this podcast and supporting all of the fellow members in your medical profession. I have so much admiration for the team. Thank you for tuning in today and allowing us to be one of your meaningful moments. Please rate, review, and subscribe, and share with friends, family, and colleagues. Meaningful Medicine was produced by Shiva Kayambashi, Nicole Hohenstein, 
David Elkin, Nikki Elkin, Aheli Chattopadhyay, and Leigh Kodama. Editing by Nicole Hohenstein, Nikki Elkin, and Leigh Kodama. Intro and closing by Daniel Wentling. On Meaningful Medicine, we are careful to ensure that all stories are compliant with healthcare privacy laws and details may have been changed to ensure patient confidentiality. All views expressed are of the person speaking and not their employer.